Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. A New Hampshire congressional race is considered a bellwether for the presidential election. This district is one of the swingiest districts in the country. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about the political races to watch in our region, from that swingy district to Senator Susan Collins' highly contested seat in Maine that could help flip the Senate. Also on the show, how New Englanders are coping with a severe drought. You know, we can turn on the faucet and water comes out and we don't give it much thought of where it's coming from. We just, we can take our showers, we can make our coffee in the morning. But it does get concerning when you turn on the shower and sediment comes out. Now you, you have to be more conscious. Plus, a journalist daily newsletter continues to gain popularity in the Upper Valley of Vermont and New Hampshire. It started with 25 friends, so the voice in it was just me talking to friends. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. In the 2016 election, President Donald Trump did not win any New England states outright. But he did win the second district in Maine, and he narrowly lost to Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. Trump fared the worst in Vermont, where he got almost a third of the vote, according to Politico. Back then, Vermont Public Radio's podcast Brave Little State reached out to Trump supporters. Mary Gert was one of them. I connected with a lot of people that were conservative, that are disabled, that are Sikhs, Sikhs for Trump, Blacks for Trump. So I think we all kind of coalesced in this group that wasn't ever there before. So that was 2016. But with ongoing crises in the country and national polls showing Trump support flagging, Brave Little State wanted to find out where Mary stood now. Angela Evansy talked to her. The past four years have held big changes for Mary and her husband. We made a big move from Vermont. We lived in Moncton for about 40 years since I moved to Vermont. And uh, we decided to sell our farm, what was left of it in the house, and move to Virginia. She says it was an affordability decision. Now she lives in a town called Louisa. On a dirt Slightly dirt road. Nothing like I used to travel in Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) Something that hasn't changed? Mary's support for Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definite. Yeah. No question. Mary used to be a diehard Democrat. Her words. You know, I think about the benevolence of being a Democrat, take care of everybody. But then when it tips over into progressive government or socialist socialism where you're taking from everybody there's no motivation to get ahead you know now she's a republican i would say more libertarian if that could ever become successful this former nurse says she picked trump in 2016 because she didn't like obamacare it overpromised and i was hoping to see 
a shakeup in in government where it wasn't just career politicians going back to the trough and just you know not being in touch with me on my level so on those two points how are you feeling like things have gone well i feel like you know the deficit just goes up and up and it doesn't seem to change in that respect um i think there's definitely a division in the country division in my family my friends You'll notice that Mary cited two negatives. When I asked her what she thinks has been positive about the Trump presidency, she mentions a few things. Deregulation, a list she'd seen online about what Trump has done for black Americans and the first lady, Melania Trump. But do you do you feel like your life is better, you know, four years into a Trump presidency? Well, you know, part of it's yes, in a way, part of it's feeling good that we won you know it's like honestly hillary really sunk my boat when she said his followers are all deplorable what does that mean deplorable mary is still savoring that four-year-old victory i felt pretty good about that i felt pretty good about the fact that we finally came to the realization that we had to leave vermont and we had to just do it. That was tough. That was really tough. So on a personal level, and you know, I've been disabled a while, but it's been hard to, it's been hard to handle not working. These days, Mary spends most of her time at home. I do a lot of internet, you know, surfing. I tweet a lot. And, um, I have a blog. I do a blog every day. I joined Parler, P-A-R-L-E-R, which is a conservative Twitter kind of a thing. When she talked to BLS four years ago, Mary said she hoped Americans would learn how to talk across difference. And find common ground. How do you think that's going in our country right now? Yeah, I think it's it's not happening. Yeah. It's a great divide. And I think that shutting us down has made it bigger how so with the shutdowns i think it's more divisive you know and contentious do you wear a mask do you not wear a mask mary is talking about trump's politicization of the covid19 pandemic which is widely seen as contributing to our country's high death toll 209,000 americans and counting but Mary doesn't blame the president for our country's response. I think Dr. Fauci is one thing that he's, he really shouldn't be using that guy. She blames other public figures. The New York governor, I've been hung up on that. She has no problem with Trump's response to the racial justice protests either. I was hoping that they would let him keep the National Guard in those places. In fact, no matter which national crisis we talk about, Mary has no words of criticism for the president, even when she disagrees with his policies. How are you feeling about how President Trump's administration has dealt with the climate crisis? Well, you know, I'm, I've been anti-fracking for forever. That is something I completely disagree with. And on the other hand, fuel's a lot cheaper. I mean, but 
I, I'm concerned about that. And I'm concerned about in the West, you know, the lack of good forestry management. Recent polling shows Joe Biden ahead in Mary's new home state of Virginia. What will you do if Joe Biden wins? Oh, I'll just start crying. <laughs> no, just kidding. I, I, I'm not sure my life will change all that much. That was Angela Evansy of Vermont Public Radio's podcast, Brave Little State. You can find a link to the entire episode and hear the perspectives of other Trump supporters at our website, nextnewengland.org. Now, we're going to take some time to focus on elections in Maine, because of all the New England states, it's where most of the action is at this November. There's only one Republican serving in Congress from New England. That's Maine Senator Susan Collins, and her seat is highly contested this year. The Cook Political Report, among others, is saying the Collins race is a toss-up between her and Democratic challenger Sarah Gideon, who's currently Speaker of Maine's House of Representatives. If Democrats are going to take control of the Senate, Collins' seat is one of their better bets. Joining us now to talk about the race is Maine Public Radio's chief political correspondent, Steve Missler. Hey there, Steve. Hey, how's it going? Good. So um, Collins has held the Senate seat since 1996, four terms. Is this her most contested election? I would say that it is in terms of re-election, but her very first Senate run was actually very, very close. So she narrowly won that. But it was after that that she won convincingly. In fact, she has won in Democratic wave years, including in 2008 when she had what was then considered a very viable and uh, challenger in Tom Allen, but she clobbered him. But this is a different race altogether. And, you know, it's much closer for a lot of reasons, one of which is that we've really seen Collins's once sky high popularity really is is down to the point where she's either the least popular U.S. senator in the country or second, you know, depending on where she and Mitch McConnell are these days. Yeah. So when you talk to Maine voters who used to support Collins and now say they won't, what what's the reasoning that they give? Well, there's a couple. I mean, the, one of them, of course, is, you know, what is kind of considered sort of a watershed moment in terms of Collins's career, which was her vote to confirm Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. You know, there were other votes that I think were damaging to her in, in the sense that they kind of eroded her long coalition, which has always been Republican voters, of course, un- unenrolled voters or independents, as they're commonly referred to, and Democrats, frankly. I mean, a lot of Democrats, including Democratic women. But I think the Kavanaugh vote and what happened there, you could draw almost a straight line between her decision to vote for him in this like steady decline in support, especially among women. And women, I think, will be a big key in determining whether or not S- Susan Collins goes back for the fifth term. And then what about President Trump? Is there any indication that he could be negatively impacting Senator Collins' campaign, particularly among voters who supported her in the past but are not keen on Trump? Absolutely. I think that's another big factor. Collins, in a lot of ways, has become sort of an avatar for what some voters view as Republicans' unwillingness to check the president you know, in his behavior and conduct. And Democrats here, including uh, Collins's leading challenger, Sarah Gideon, have really tried to handcuff Collins to 
President Trump. You mentioned her vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh. We're now in the middle of another Supreme Court nominee confirmation process with Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Senator Collins has said that she will not vote to confirm the nominee until after the election. Why do you think she's doing that? Is it part of what you've been talking about, like walking this thin line? Well, that's certainly what what she's being accused of doing. I mean, what she has said, and she she rejects the idea that she's made any sort of political calculation at all. But what she has said is that she's trying to be consistent with Republicans' position in 2016, which, as you know, was that you know there shouldn't be a, a Supreme Court judge confirmed in an election year. Now, she didn't hold that position in 2016. She was one of maybe a handful or, or even fewer than that uh, Republican senators who voted to hold hearings or wanted to hold hearings um, for Merrick Garland. That was Obama's pick for the for the high court. She's not doing that this time. She's basically saying we, we should wait until after the election. I mentioned this at the top, uh, but the outcome of this Senate race has an impact well beyond the state of Maine. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, this is a potentially flippable seat for Democrats, which is hard to imagine going back just three years ago when Susan Collins looked pretty indestructible. But, you know, three years later, she looks very vulnerable. And it's one of maybe a half dozen seats in the country that could very well determine which party controls the Senate in 2021. And, you know, she has a, a viable challenger and Sarah Gideon. And so, you know, when you put all those things together, you know, Susan Collins is in deep trouble and definitely in, if not the fight of her political career, is certainly up there. Steve Missler is chief political correspondent for Maine Public Radio. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. We'll stay in Maine for now to talk about ranked choice voting. It's a system that's gained some traction over the past few years. This November, Maine will be the first state in the country to use it in a presidential race. And residents in Massachusetts will decide if they want to switch to it in the future. In Maine, ranked choice voting could decide if Republican Senator Susan Collins keeps her highly contested seat. It could also determine if the second district in the state goes to President Donald Trump again. It was the only district in New England to give an electoral vote to Trump in 2016. Anna Keller is the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Maine, a nonpartisan political organization. Anna joins us now to talk about how ranked choice voting could impact the upcoming election. Welcome to Next. Hi, thanks for having me. So first of all, for our listeners who may not know, how does ranked choice voting work? So ranked choice voting works by letting voters in an election where you've got three or more candidates rank their choices for those candidates. And then if no candidate gets over 50% of the first choice votes, you go into a instant runoff where the candidate who has the least number of the first choice votes is eliminated. And then the people who voted for that candidate first, you look at what their second choices were. And those second choice votes get added to the totals of the other candidates. If that means that someone has over 50% now, that candidate's the winner. Otherwise, you do another elimination of the lowest candidate and you keep going. So let's take the Senate race with incumbent Susan Collins and Democratic challenger Sarah Gideon and then two independent candidates. In a hypothetical situation, what would ranked choice voting look like here? Let's say that neither 
Susan Collins nor Sarah Gideon gets over 50% of the vote. With ranked choice voting, what you would do is say which candidate has the least number of first choice votes. It's probably going to be one of the two independents. That candidate gets eliminated. And you look at who did that candidate's voters put as their second choice? So, yeah, one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to look at this race is, I mean, obviously, it's a huge race this coming election, but also it really highlights the fact that these votes that go to the independent candidates could really actually decide the race. It's fairly likely that they will, unless something unexpected happens in the last week or two of the race, where one of the major party candidates suddenly pulls strongly ahead, it's going to be really close. And in that circumstance, those independent candidates, voters will probably make the difference. This is what happened in Maine in our first use of ranked choice voting in 2018, where we had the second congressional district U.S. representative seat was decided by the second choice votes of people who had voted for independents. Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting race because the incumbent Republican, Bruce Poliquin, had the plurality of votes, but not the majority. And so then the ranked choice voting system kicked in and he lost, right? Exactly. And what we learned from that race and what has been interesting to see play out this year is that there's a real incentive for major party candidates to court those independent voters and say, you know, I might not be your first choice, but please rank me as your second. That's so interesting. So it's kind of expanded the way that candidates campaign. Now, so we mentioned the second district at the top. This district went for Trump in 2016, and some polls currently project that President Trump still has an advantage. How does ranked choice voting come into play with the second district's electoral vote? It'll be interesting to see how many voters take advantage of that and choose to rank someone who's not a major party candidate as their first choice. If we do go into a ranked choice scenario, it could mean that we will have to wait a little longer to have the results because the ranked choice tally takes a few extra days. And I hope that that will not come down to a deciding factor in the presidential election. But if it does, we've got a lot of confidence in the main secretary of state and their processes, even if the whole eyes of the nation were on us in this case. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Anna Keller is the executive director of the Maine League of Women Voters. Thank you so much for your time today, Anna. My pleasure. As we mentioned earlier, President Donald Trump lost New Hampshire by a hair in 2016. That makes it the other New England state to watch this election. Beyond the presidential ticket, a close race in the swing state is being waged in the congressional district that covers the New Hampshire seacoast and the eastern part of the state. WBUR senior political reporter Anthony Brooks takes a look. New Hampshire's first congressional district, which covers the eastern side of the state, can't make up its mind. Between 2008 and 2016, five election cycles in a row, it rocked back and forth, electing a Democrat to Congress, then a Republican, then a Democrat, then a Republican, and then a Democrat. 
Terry Norelli is a Democrat and the former Speaker of the New Hampshire House. This district is one of the swingiest districts in the country. Norelli is backing Democrat Chris Pappas, who is trying to become the first incumbent in 12 years to win back-to-back races in the district. Pappas spoke recently at a woman's health center near Portsmouth, with Republicans pushing to put another conservative justice, Amy Coney Barrett, on the Supreme Court. Pappas says abortion rights are at stake in this election, as is the Affordable Care Act, which the Trump administration wants the high court to overturn. This is hanging by a thread. We're talking about health care for tens of millions of Americans. I think it's a political attempt that only seeks to get to the goal of taking away access to health care, and we shouldn't stand for it. The focus on health care helped Democrats, including Pappas, ride a blue wave into Congress two years ago. Now, in the midst of a pandemic, it remains a potent issue for Democrats. Pappas's opponent is Matt Mowers, who worked in the Trump administration and who's been endorsed by the president. In a district with lots of unenrolled and moderate voters, Mowers is trying to label Pappas as someone who marches in lockstep with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. His first vote was uh, to support Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. He's voted with her 100 percent of the time since then. And not only that, but he's forgotten New Hampshire. Mowers accuses Pappas of wanting to raise taxes. Pappas denies that, though he does favor reversing the Trump tax cuts that mostly benefit the wealthy. But in a state that prides itself on no income tax, Mowers argues that Pappas is out of step with the New Hampshire way. He tried to press his case in a recent debate on NHPR. Because we know the New Hampshire way is to keep taxes low. Well, you and Nancy Pelosi are trying to raise them. I don't support raising taxes on working people, especially during this pandemic. And I don't need a lecture on New Hampshire values. I don't need a lecture on New Hampshire values and what makes this state special from someone who just moved here to launch a political career. Pappas has deep family roots in the Granite State, while Mowers was born in New Jersey and moved to New Hampshire just a few years ago. But Mowers' message that Pappas is too beholden to Nancy Pelosi appeals to Charlene Hurst, a Republican who's running for the New Hampshire state legislature. He's too tied to to his party's leadership. To me, that's wrong. You have to put your constituents first. And when your votes are just like every other vote in your party... You're not thinking for yourself, and that is wrong. But if Pappas is too close to Pelosi, Mowers is too close to the man who endorsed him, Donald Trump. That according to Terry Norelli, the former New Hampshire lawmaker. She says Mowers is part of a slate of New Hampshire Republicans who will do the president's bidding. They may do it with a friendlier face, or they may do it with a calmer voice. But don't be deceived that they are pushing the same policies that Donald Trump is pushing. Now, look, at the end of the day, this is a campaign between myself and Congressman Pappas. I don't give a damn what my party leadership wants. Again, Republican Matt Mowers. I don't give a damn about anything else other than what's in the best interest of New Hampshire's middle class families. That's what matters right now. And I think that's what's going to matter on November 3rd. But a recent poll from UNH suggests the Democrat Pappas is leading this race. Andy Smith, who directs the UNH polling center, says President Trump is the reason why. The problem for all Republicans in New Hampshire is Donald Trump is not popular in the state. Uh, He's losing in our most recent polls by about 10 percentage points to Joe Biden. So no surprise that the incumbent Chris Pappas is eager to link Mowers to the president. Fundamental decency is on the ballot. You know, my opponent, just like the president, is running a campaign of fear and smear.
Although considered a swing state, New Hampshire has been trending more Democratic in recent years. And by the way, lately the state's first congressional district has been pretty good at picking presidential winners. It supported Barack Obama in 2008 and in 2012. And in 2016, Donald Trump by a whisker. Now, while apparently giving an edge to Chris Pappas, polls suggest it's also leaning in favor of Joe Biden. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Anthony Brooks. Last week, we asked you, our listeners, tell us what issues are motivating you to vote in the general election. We heard from Jean Alley in Willington, Connecticut. The main reason I guess that I would be voting this time is because the faster we get the bigoted fascist out of the White House, the better. We also heard from listener Tracy Stevenson, who agrees she's concerned about four more years with President Trump. She wrote in an email, I'm donating money. I'm volunteering at the polls. I share information on social media. This is the most involved I've ever been, but I truly fear for our future if this administration stays in office. And now we're interested in hearing from New Englanders with a different perspective on the election. If you're a Trump supporter... What issues are driving you to the polls? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. After the break, we'll have a story about the severe drought that's hit much of New England. Plus, training doctors on the health effects of climate change. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Despite some recent rain, New England's drought is growing, particularly in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. It's causing wells to run dry, and the hotter temperatures of climate change could make future droughts more likely in this region. As part of New Hampshire Public Radio's By Degrees project, Annie Ropeek reports on how the dry conditions are affecting people who rely on well water and what it could mean to prepare for the future. The bog behind Jen Kippen's house in Hooksett, New Hampshire, has never been this dry, where normally there's lots of wildlife and enough mud and water for her grandsons to lose their sneakers in. Right now, it's just a lot of dying plants. This should all be water, all of this. Um, But as you can see, it's all these yellow ferns, green ferns. Um, There's no water. There's none. New England didn't have much consistent snowpack last winter, and this summer was hotter than average with very little rain. Conditions aren't improving, and wells like Kippen's are starting to run dry. The water in her house is coming out gritty and orange, clogging up her filters. She says dealing with this has been exhausting, especially with extra kids and adults living in the house due to the pandemic. 
They've bought bottled drinking water, cut back on baths and showers, even began taking their laundry to the local laundromat. It's made her think about how normally people in this region take their water for granted. You know, we can turn on the faucet and water comes out and we don't give it much thought of where it's coming from. We just, we can take our showers, we can make our coffee in the morning. But it does get concerning when you turn on the shower and sediment comes out. Now you, you have to be more conscious. Now Kippen is facing a tough choice. Where to get water if the drought doesn't ease up. To drill a well, thousands of dollars handed over one time, and I, I don't have that. I don't know financially what we're going to do. I don't even know what it's going to cost to have water trucked in in a holding tank. So for now, we're honestly praying for the best, praying for some rain. What little rain is forecast all across New England in the next few weeks likely won't be enough to end the region's drought. And New Hampshire state climatologist Mary Stampone says this will keep happening as the world gets warmer and even as the Northeast gets wetter. Yeah, this is complicated. Uh, We are still getting wetter. But the problem is we're getting more of that precipitation in larger storms. But we're still also getting warmer. And so in the summer months, we have those warmer temperatures that can extract more water from the soil. So if we happen to have a dry, warm season, the warmer temperatures make that dryness more intense. Stampone says there isn't a lot of research about drought in the Northeast. She's working on studying how it relates to changing winter snowpacks. But one thing is clear, climate change makes it more likely that rain will be inconsistent and that dry spells will worsen into droughts. So how can New England be better prepared, especially the majority of residents in states like New Hampshire who rely on either public or private wells? Stampone says we need to change some habits around water. I mean, I personally would recommend conservation, especially in the late spring, those early summer months, because by the time a drought is declared, a lot of those things that would have given you another month of water, maybe, you know, that time is already gone. New Hampshire Department of Environmental Services Water Division Director Tom O'Donovan puts it another way. Buying a fire extinguisher when your house is on fire makes no sense of any kind. Buying a fire extinguisher ahead of time is how you save your house. This is exactly what's going on with wells. Conserve now, because conserving after the well goes dry doesn't do you good at all. He says conservation can be proactive. It can mean investing ahead of time in low-flow toilets and showerheads, in fixing leaks, in drought-hardy landscaping that needs less irrigation. And there are other bigger ways to prepare. After a similarly severe drought hit much of New England in 2016, the hottest year ever recorded on Earth, O'Donovan says lots of people deepen their private wells and so are more protected this time. It's the same idea for public water systems, where O'Donovan says redundancies are key, like the state's Southern New Hampshire Regional Water Interconnection Project. The massive new pipeline is linking some well users and smaller systems to a major reservoir, using nearly $40 million in MTBE contamination settlement funds from Exxon. It was designed to move water to uh, areas where water was not available because it was contaminated. It serves exactly the same purpose when water is not available. So those sort of interconnected uh, approaches are something we in the department feel is very, very good investment in resiliency for our communities. But money isn't the only obstacle to resilience. The only wells in the town of Plymouth date to the 1950s and are at risk from droughts, floods, and contamination ever since the state built I-93 a few hundred feet away. Water District Superintendent Jason Randall says they spent 50 years looking for a suitable spot for a new well and are still waiting on permits to start drilling. It'll be the first time in you know, close to 60, 70 years that we've had a backup source 
for water. Local water officials like Randall say getting clean water into people's homes is complicated and expensive, even in the best of times. With more droughts and other risks on the rise, the cheapest way to ensure the state will have enough water is to just use less of it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. That story comes from New Hampshire Public Radio's Climate Change Reporting Project by Degrees. A push to educate doctors about the health effects of climate change is expanding from med schools into residency programs where new physicians put their skills to the test. Skeptics wonder, what is it being taught instead? From member station WBUR in Boston, reporter Martha Biebinger begins our story in a clinic exam room. Well, Steve, I, I just remember for so many months, it was hard for you to walk. There are three people in this exam room. Dr. Gora Basu, a resident he is training, and 71-year-old Steve Kearns, who's recovering from West Nile virus. Kearns remembers that mosquito bite on his neck, but very little about the brain infection that landed him in the hospital for a week. For at least six months after that, I felt like every five minutes I was being run over by a truck. I couldn't work, I couldn't walk very well, and I couldn't focus. I wondered for a bit if I'd ever get better. Now, almost two years later, Kern says he's back to about five hours a day on the job, making windows and doors. And he started reading again. It sounds like you've made tremendous progress. Dr. Charlotte Rostis is a third-year primary care resident at Cambridge Hospital, part of Cambridge Health Alliance. It, it seems like tremendous progress. But it was scary. It was scary. It was, it was definitely scary, yes. And I'm not scared anymore, although... Can I get West Nile virus again? Dr. Basu sympathizes with the fear. West Nile is still rare. There were no cases in Massachusetts before 2002. In 2018, the year a mosquito bit Kearns, cases had climbed to 49. Mosquitoes love warm temperatures. And so when temperatures increase, uh, mosquitoes can have longer breeding seasons. The virus itself, West Nile, can replicate faster, and they bite more. Basu learned a lot while treating Kearns. He was Basu's first West Nile case. When someone comes in with a fever and is confused, it's not what my mind thinks of as the diagnosis right away. This case has really taught me how much I need to be informed about the ways in which climate change is changing the patterns of infectious disease around the United States. To inform his residents, Basu added the health impacts of climate change to an elective course he teaches— Rostis says residents need much more. This is something that needs to be more directly integrated into the curriculum and needs to become standard of practice because I think it's going to have such a huge impact on human health. There are no approved curricula for hospitals that might want to tell emerging lung specialists about longer pollen seasons as temperatures rise or teach new emergency room physicians to consider more waterborne diseases for patients with fever and diarrhea. But pediatrician Rebecca Phillipsborn at Emory University has just published a framework hospitals can use as a starting point. Patients want physicians to be able to provide guidance on things that affect their individual health. We have this accumulating body of evidence that climate change does just that. It poses harms to our patients. But some doctors ask, are those harms worse than whatever might be left out of a busy resident's schedule? 
Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, the former associate dean for curriculum at the University of Pennsylvania's medical school, says hospitals train doctors, not advocates. He worries that discussing climate change with patients might create mistrust. I do think there are concerns about getting into the political sphere because I'm against anything that's going to represent um, a barrier between patients and physicians being comfortable with each other. Other physicians see wildfires sweeping western states and hurricanes flooding the Gulf Coast and say... We want to impart this information to our residents as fast as we can because it's so important that they gain this information sooner than later. Dr. Paul DeLaripa is an author of a climate change course for residents at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston that began last month. These are all early efforts... Advocates say including climate change in residency training won't stick until doctors are tested on the health effects before they are licensed to practice medicine. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. Coming up, a journalist starts writing a daily newsletter to friends, then it takes off. Plus, two dairy farmers in Vermont talk about how staying small and efficient has helped them during the pandemic. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. I'm Morgan Springer. New Hampshire Public Radio has been surveying listeners about their political coverage. One question they ask listeners is, where they get their news? And the answers caught reporter Sean Hurley's attention. Along with NHPR, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, many listeners told them they got their news from something called Daybreak. What in the world is Daybreak, Sean wondered. Here's what he found. As he's done for almost two years now, Rob Gerwitt wakes at 4.30 every morning. He goes downstairs, starts the coffee, turns on his laptop, and begins to write. Get started as an experiment. I had no idea whether it was going to last beyond a week, let alone, you know, a year and a half now. But it started with 25 friends, so the voice in it was just me talking to friends. At 62, Gerwitt has been a journalist for most of his career. But in the last few years, the long-form reporting work he was good at was getting harder and harder to find. I spent the bulk of my career writing, <laughs> you know, 3,000 to 8,000 word articles. Those days are gone in the magazine world. And oddly, I really like writing these short things. Writing these short things is nearly Gerwitz's new job in the form of a daily email newsletter called Daybreak, a charmingly written harvest of world and local news from the Upper Valley, Vermont, and New Hampshire. And now it's closing in on 7,000 subscribers. And and if I'm thinking about this going out to 7,000 people, I would never hit send. I was just it's like, oh, you know. So in my mind, I'm still just writing to friends. Sitting in the forested backyard of his house in Norwich, Vermont, Gerwitt picks one of that day's 15 rye quick-take articles to illustrate this writing-to-friends style. The other day, the McDonald Observatory in Texas posted an image of a jellyfish sprite, an enormous red sprite that flashed for a split second above a distant thunderstorm back in July. Words can't come close to describing it except to say, wait, that happens here on Earth? Each daybreak begins with Gerwitz's almost always optimistic weather report, 
composed from data gathered from the National Weather Service. Highs in the mid-70s, winds from the northwest, and temps bumping down to 50 overnight. Isn't that lovely when it gets to 50? It's like, oh my gosh, can't wait. There's a COVID numbers and status update, sometimes at the top if it seems pressing, down at the bottom if not, followed by local news, which Gerwitt defines broadly. News is also the photograph of sunrise on top of Mount Cardigan nearby, or we've got a really gifted uh, writer and naturalist, a guy named Ted Levin, who lives up in Thetford, and so news may just be, you know, his musings on ticks or on the buzzards that are there or on the snakes that he sees. In fact, Gerwitt believes, especially with Daybreak's unexpected success, and he's filling a need formerly provided by newspapers. One of the mistakes that uh, newspaper ownership made as they were imposing cuts on, on papers was they stripped away everything that was fun about the news and about newspapers. And when all you're getting is little dumbed-down pieces of spinach, it's like, why, why subscribe? What's the point? Not only has the fun been removed, Gerwood argues, but we've become jaded by the pandemic, by the current divisions in our country, into believing there's nothing but bad news. So why not make it clear not by telling them, but by showing them every day that that's wrong? It's just plain wrong. I mean, there's a lot going on. You know, in any town, if you think about the amount of kind of news that would interest people, there's a ton of it. Almost none of it actually ever gets reported on. Gerwood himself is no longer a reporter, a job he sorely misses. So this is my stand-in for it. I'm mostly a curator. Uh, although I think of it more as a, this seems like an odd term, but more as a concierge. What really told me I was on the right path was that I started getting emails from complete strangers telling me that they had never thought that they would read anything else but the New York Times over, over their morning coffee, but this is now what they open first. And that's where the payoff comes. Another payoff comes in the form of reader donations and a single text-based ad in nearly every edition. By mid-March it was clear to me that it could become sustainable as a way of making a living. It's kind of on a path where I think by next year it it could be all that I need. Gerwood implicitly trusts that he'll eventually get there, and that's largely to do with the almost intimate relationship he's created with his 7,000 subscribers. You know, I've had more than one person say, you know, every morning I feel like I'm just, you know, rolling over in bed and there you are speaking to me, which is kind of an honor. With every 6 a.m. edition of Daybreak, Rob Gerwin hopes to remind his readers that all the news that's fit to print can be as reassuring as it is real. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sean Hurley. When schools and restaurants closed at the beginning of the pandemic, the milk industry lost some of its biggest customers. Independent producer Erica Heilman visits a small farm in Vermont's Essex County to see how they're faring. Stephen Russo and his son Stephen Russo run the Russo Farm on Route 102 in Brunswick, which is in Essex County. Stephen Sr. has been farming this land for over 36 years, and his son has been working on it his whole life and hopes to take it over one day. They have 63 Holsteins, and they milk 30 at any given time. And they're still milking into pails, which get dumped into holding tanks, and then the milk gets sucked up into lines that take it to the milk house. I went up to talk with them about how they're surviving COVID and why size really does matter. This is Stephen Jr. 
the bolt tank holds 400, no, 545 gallons, but it holds 4,800 4, pounds of milk. So you take the 4,800 pounds of milk, divide it by 100, and then you times that by the milk price, and that's what you get paid. What's, what do you have to break to be okay? Here's Stephen Sr. Well, see, it costs eight, $18 a hundredweight to make a hundredweight of milk. So if they pay you $12, you're going backwards, ain't you? But you've got to be savvy. And the price now of milk is? Uh, or tell me about what happened through COVID to the price of milk. Wow, it, it dropped like a rock, went down $13. Because they said they clo- all the schools were closed. All the restaurants were closed, you know, pizza joints and stuff, and really put a damper to it. But, but we don't spend a lot of money either. That makes a big difference. And we don't buy a lot of new paint. Paint? Yeah. New tractors, or, you know, new equipment. And when it's brand new, you know, it doesn't look shiny, we call it, you know, that's, that's where we come with that scenario. We try to run everything as long as I, I can. We got a real strict maintenance procedure. The other day I was weed whacking on this bank with my weed whacker and my head fell off. And that was June 26, 2020. I went up the house and looked in my book, see when I bought it. I bought it June 26, 2000, 20 years ago. <laughs> you got to keep it simple and you got to keep it as efficient as possible. So you're saving the high spot to carry you, hopefully to carry you through the low spots. But why do so many people not go that route? Why do so many people try to... Keeping up with their Joneses. No, the whole thing... And I had a, I had a banker one time said, Steve, why don't you build a heifer barn and melt more cows in the barn? I don't want another barn to work, and one barn's enough. When you grow your farm too big, you're going to rely on help. But the only efficient way to feed the cows is, is you've got to chop everything and put it through a mixer wagon. So that's just every new cow adds new complexity to how you run the business. Well, we, we breed our cows. So number one, when I get up, I want to look at a pretty cow. Number two, I've been breeding them for quite a few years, and I want them to give a lot of milk. So I, mean, I don't want to milk over 30 cows. We milked 30 cows this morning. Well, last night, we set... Uh, 4554 4554 pounds of milk off 30 cows. Some farmers got overextended. They got the big money on milk and they went out buying things. We don't buy nothing. There ain't really too many little farms left. 30 cow farms. And Vermont, I know, it might be, it might have some Amish. They call me Amish something once in a while cuz I milk with buckets and stuff, but No, it just they could get overextended. They could pay too much for the real estate. And, you know, you're banking on this type of money for your milk check, and all of a sudden, you go down there, well, what are you going to do? Go borrow more money? Just keep your farm afloat? That's a sinking boat. Does, does some of this have to do with willingness to live this close to the bone? Yeah, I mean, most people don't want to work seven days a week. <laughs> I mean... Something breaks, well, your supper will be waiting when you get there. It's not, oh, you know, supper time isn't always on a regular basis. So, and, and that's, it's still worth it to you? They've been doing it for 39 years, and no sense in stopping now. 
If it is such a grind, why do you keep doing it? Pride, heart and soul is into it. Like living off the land. You learn how to be a plumber, or electrician, a mechanic, a carpenter, a soil agronomist, to which grasses you put in what areas of the field. And you learn to know what the weather's going to do. I mean, if you sit inside a building all day, you don't experience nothing, really, I don't think. I like it because I raise chickens, and I raise meat birds, and I raise laying hens, and we sell them. And then we raise, we get a pig that's raised, and we eat that. So, and all the vegetables come off the land. So really, we don't really want for much. We didn't even worry about toilet paper. We had some anyway. <laughs> but I mean, when they were, you know, people had to go run in the stores, and they got all panicky. I had two twenty-three cubic feet freezers, chock-a-block full, chicken, beef. I bought a beef from my buddy that he had, and I I bought half of it, and that went in the freezer, nice. Hamburg, and uh, oh yeah, we just living the dream. You sit on the porch and watch the cars go by, but I tell you, I never see so many New York plates as I did the last two years. What are you the most worried about right now? Nothing. Just getting up every day and going to work. Nobody gets sick. Same. So things are bad and hard and everything, but. No, things here. We seem think positive. Good. We think positive. Good here. I mean, am I right? Well, yeah, I had the milkman. He comes in. He said, "Everybody's pissed at morning, Steve. And what are you doing?" You, I said, "I'm living the dream." I mean, you can't beat yourself up. It's just, you know, just go with it. You look at the cows; they're doing the best of their ability, and it's not their fault. It's the people that don't know how to market the milk. The suits. They need to open up the tie, let oxygen to the brain, so they have the. They take the CS course. Common sense. Independent producer Erica Heilman reported that story for Vermont Public Radio. Erica is the host of the podcast Rumble Strip Vermont. And that's a wrap on Next today. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.